Welcome to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Grant Smith from the Department of Pacific Affairs at the Australian National University, and I'm joined from London by my co-host Louisa Lim, former China correspondent for the BBC and NPR, now with the Centre for Advancing Journalism at Melbourne University. We're on air with support from the Australian Centre for China in the World, and we're recording this episode at the ANU's School of Music. Today we're going dark. We're going to discuss China as a dystopian mashup of Black Mirror, Blade Runner, and William Gibson's New Romancer. For those not in the know, Black Mirror is a Netflix series by the British writer Charlie Brooker that depicts a dystopian future. One episode shows a world where your online social credit rating, which rises and falls according to your online and offline behaviour, determines your access to housing, travel, or finance. Here's a small taste of Black Mirror, a moment when a character has her air ticket turned down. And a warning: this clip contains language that might offend some listeners. Just, I'm sorry, it won't let me book it without the correct ranking. But it's so close. There's just nothing I can do. Christ, I mean, surely I'm gonna have to ask you to moderate your language there. Sorry, it's just I'm maid of honor. I cannot miss this wedding. And I am so sorry about that. Can you call the supervisor? I cannot do that. Can you just call the supervisor? I cannot do that. Call the fucking supervisor. Okay, that's profanity. We're zero tolerance on profanity. I'm sorry. It's just. Yeah, I have to serve the next customer. No, 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 no. Step away, ma'am. God, just fucking help me. I'm so sorry. I've called security. Oh, oh, no, 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 no! Please don't do that. Um, I'm. I'm a five-star in you. Five stars. What's the issue here, Hannah? Intimidation and profanity. Oh no, no, no! I was not intimidating. Don't speak, ma'am. I was just trying ma'am? to. Okay, so, in order to restore calm, I'm invoking my authority as airport security to dock you one full ranking point as a punitive measure. This is a temporary measure. No. The score reverts to normal in 24 hours. No, no, no! But I need it now. Period. All down votes are subject to a times two multiplier. Times two. We recommend you avoid negative feedback at this time. I'm on double damage. Please, remove yourself from the airport immediately. China's due to roll out a similar system in just two years. Some aspects are already underway. China's Supreme Court said last year 6.15 million citizens had been banned from traveling by airplane due to social misdeeds. While 9.59 million people were on a credit blacklist, that restricted their travel possibilities after they defied court orders. If official Chinese surveys are to be believed, however, 80% of Chinese citizens support a social credit system, in part to rebuild trust. To unpack this dystopian present, we're joined by Elsa Kania from the Technology and National Security Program at the Center for a New American Security. Lotus Run from the University of Toronto Citizen Lab, and Samantha Hoffman from the Mercator Institute for China Studies in Berlin, they've all recently written reports for the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, respectively on artificial intelligence, big data, and the social credit system in China. Welcome to the program. Thank you. It's great to be here. Lotus, let's start with the ground zero of. Tech for social control in China, which appears to be Xinjiang, where the authorities have a long-running campaign against separatism, and we've heard all kinds of alarming reports about the surveillance state at work in Xinjiang, from facial scanners to iris scanners to apps that、uh, scan your phones for 
content deemed problematic. Can you talk us through some of the different technologies that we know are already being used to kind of monitor and control? For sure. Um, so in my report, I talk about that when you look at Chinese government's investment in big data technologies, a lot of them are going to public security sector. In the case of Xinjiang, uh, we've seen Chinese police have reportedly be collecting DNA samples, fingerprints, iris scans, and blood types of all residents using questionable methods. There are reports on Xinjiang police using apps and enforcing residents to install apps on their phone to scan for um, alleged harmful information on their mobile phone. Do we know, because there's also blood type collection and this kind of thing going on, do we know how that's all kind of linked together? There's not too many reports on how these DNA samples are being collected, and I think that reflects a big problem in a lot of Chinese policies and, uh, and, and regulation, that there's a lack of transparency, accountability that we can find in public documents with regard to how these samples are being used and collected um, from the public. But in the case of DNA, it sounds like an incredibly high-tech, almost CSI-type approach um, to monitoring a population. Do they have the the technical uh, hardware and software to back that up? Well, there are reports in China, not only in Xinjiang, but elsewhere, that um, Chinese uh, government are forcing students in public schools to collect DNA samples from the young, early young age, and how they're using these samples to analyze and what they're being used are still unclear at this moment. Oh, interesting. Um, Samantha, there was a recent report in the Global Times about the Xueliang, or sharp eyes system in the countryside. And under this, villagers can watch real-time footage from surveillance cameras placed around the village on their TVs or mobile phones and report crimes with the touch of a button. By the end of 2017, this had been installed in 14,000 villages, with 153,000 villages installing apps. But the Global Times boasts that this shows, quote, the capability of China's new mass surveillance network in rural areas, which could eventually turn every television set and mobile phone in the countryside into a security monitoring terminal. Now, this volume of data, which would be exponentially multiplied to cover the whole of China, is this really useful for policing? Uh, It's definitely useful. It is something that the Chinese Communist Party eventually hopes to harness. It's whether or not they get there. But these processes started actually quite a long time ago with things like e-government in the early 1990s to grid policing in the early 2000s, which turned into grid management. And now we're seeing the development of smart cities. So if technology catches up with the concepts, then yes, the data could be more useful over time. In your research, have you come across reliable reports that suggest people are in favour of this? Well, first, on the the participation in their own um, uh, management or in their own surveillance, I think that's a key part of social credit and social management, the process that social credit is uh, essentially augmenting. And part of what social management is supposed to do in social credit is it's integrating um, everyday economic, political, and social activities together into one thing. It's not uh, separating them. And by doing that, uh, it makes um, participation in your own management somehow more acceptable because there's benefits to participating. There's also the argument that China is a low-trust society, and by creating some kind of accountability that benefits social and economic development, as well as political control simultaneously. Uh, In order to participate in your own management, you have to somehow think that you um, can benefit from it, or at least that not participating is not a rational choice. 
I think that it's probably true that it's it's generally acceptable, although you know it's really hard to I think get that kind of data and accurately uh, test it. To follow up with you, Lotus, in, in your report you write that by 2020 there'll be over 600 million surveillance cameras in China, basically one camera for every two people. Now my hope is that local government officials are the weak link in all this. They're underpaid, demoralised by the anti-corruption campaign and jealously guarding their own data. Now. Is there a belief that artificial intelligence can overcome this weakness, if you like, in the Chinese system? Yeah, I think you touch upon a very important um, aspect. We've seen a trend of public security forces trying to get a hold and actually be adapted to this kind of technology in their daily use. Um, if you look at all the new kind of partnership between um, the states and private sector, uh, you would notice that the Ministry of Public Security um, in China has been partnering with a lot of uh, private sector companies such as iFiTech and Tencent and trying to use their technology to enhance their political control and social management. So we definitely see this trend um, happening already in China that um, is in enabling um, the police forces to use this technology to better enhance the management. For example, if you look at iFlag Tech, they've been uh, partnering with, I believe, the third research center of public security department, um, trying to use surveillance and monitoring um, technology in voice um, to control scam. Um, but then to what extent would that technology be used to survey on uh, individual and, and civilians for other purposes is kind of not transparent to us at the moment. And also for Tencent, uh, we've all know that the um, the prevalence of WeChat used in China. Basically, everyone in China cannot live without WeChat. Now, WeChat has been partnered with uh, local authorities in Guangdong province to create digital ID. So in the future, it's very important to sort of keep track of how uh, public security forces would be using this technology in daily social management. Elsa, I think you write about this, don't you? The way in which domestic champions, IT companies, are kind of playing this really important role in surveillance and in security. Why do you think that that has happened in that way? I would say that certainly... In artificial intelligence, commercial enterprises are very much at the forefront of innovation, and that is true in China as it is in the United States and around the world. And for this reason, I think it's fair to characterize China's national AI plan and strategy as state-driven in certain respects, but also very much with these commercial enterprises in the lead, and companies like Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, and iFlytech have been branded national champions, and this national team is being leveraged and mobilized to support the state because they have capabilities and technology that, in many cases, the Chinese government does not yet have or has not yet developed. So certainly these partnerships are integral to how the Chinese government is trying to advance AI development at the national level. And iFlytech, as Lotus mentioned, is both supporting the Ministry of Public Security and local governments in developing surveillance capabilities, but also leading a new state laboratory and has recently announced a new partnership with MIT. So there's some interesting dimensions to that, that you have a Chinese company that's a national champion that's closely linked to surveillance that is both integral to how AI is being developed and employed for these purposes within China, but also in certain respects uh, going global and 
marketing its technologies beyond China and quite actively engaged in activities that many of us in democracies would find problematic. And beyond that, I've even come across some indications that iFlytech's smart voice technologies may also be used in military intelligence. And certainly the capability to leverage that sort of natural language processing and machine translation can be quite useful in a number of capacities. And it certainly reflects that a lot of these technologies have a range of applications, both commercial and in ways that support uh, party state objectives and even military ambitions in many cases. Elsa, I wanted to ask you, there was a line in your report about the use of artificial intelligence to construct predictive policing, which really sounds, you know, that's completely Blade Runner and Minority Report on all of the kind of dystopian science fiction stories come true. I mean, are things like predictive policing actually being used in China today? I will tend to defer to Sam and Lotus on questions of policing, public security, surveillance, and otherwise, but I think certainly China's new generation AI development plan does quite clearly talk about the potential that AI has to enable er early warnings, so to speak, of potential social unrest, and closely monitoring public opinion online and otherwise can provide a means of predicting and preempting these sorts of incidents. It's difficult to speak to the efficacy of it, but certainly we're seeing a lot of these technologies enter use, including in some cases in the United States and other democracies, but I imagine China will very much be at the forefront of implementing and experimenting with these sorts of capabilities. And how predictive or how sci-fi spooky they really are remains to be seen. And certainly I think the ambition can often precede the full capability coming online, but it certainly will be a space to watch going forward. So Samantha and Lotus, do either of you have examples of predictive policing actually being used in China today? A major part of uh, China's social management concept is to uh, address the causes of instability at their root, which means to address problems before they be become problems. And so um, a huge reason for data collection and mass data collection is to try to identify and make the party aware of its internal and external environment. And in the report, I refer to this uh, in a section about discourse power. Um, and that's the party's ability to use uh, soft power uh, and relating to the influence and attractiveness of a country's uh, ideology and value system. That's how it extends overseas. And internally, this is just identifying any type of potential problem and dealing with it. And so that is predictive policing, but it's also just identification of problems and then using that information to shape either how people think or to shape response. So not just policing, but it's actually just across all other aspects of governance. And it's worth noting as well that this concept of discourse power also arises in Chinese writings and information warfare. The notion of how do you gain an advantage in that ideological domain relative to an adversary. So it's th thought of clearly both in terms of soft power, but also rather more offensively as well. There's definitely a trend in public security forces that they're trying to sort of prevent crime from being reactive, but to a preemptive for the use of data collection and synthesis. We've seen a lot of reports in Xinjiang. Uh, one of the reasons why the police department there is trying to require local residents to install this app to scan whether a user have a terrorist or extremist content in their phone is exactly trying to sort of prevent them from committing such a crime in the future. So there's definitely trends in Xinjiang and other places that police are trying to use this technology to 
being this preemptive um, policing, um, if you may. But how advanced is this technology is still a question that were further investigation and technical analysis. I'd also add that as we've seen lately with PLA veterans protesting and organizing at scale, certainly even if these capabilities are starting to be employed and deployed, they're not perfect. And it's also worth wondering whether as there's greater monitoring and surveillance of online spaces, whether mobilization will move offline, whether people will start to organize and react to these technologies in ways that are harder for the party to have a sense of. So there could be second or third order effects and implications of these attempts at predictive policing that the party is not anticipating. Let's talk more about social credit, because Samantha, until I read your report, I hadn't realized that this doesn't only apply to individuals, but also to companies. Um, You write about how companies with business licenses already have this 18-digit unified social credit code, and that will soon expand to include all organizations from trade unions to NGOs. I mean, how does that corporate version of social credit actually work in practice? Um, so first of all, I'll address just a bit of a misconception about the system itself. Um, the, the Black Mirror episode is actually, it's really useful because it communicates the correct idea about social engineering, the idea that your behavior will be monitored and will shape your own behavior um, based on the idea of consequences and benefits. But actually, as an individual or as an entity, um, you can be put on a blacklist which is very bad, a gray list, which is kind of bad, and a red list, which is good. Um, There's not really this real-time movement of a score up and down, uh, depending on whatever data is collected about you, Um, at least not not yet. The the airlines is a good example because the Chinese Civil Aviation Administration accused uh, numerous airlines, uh, including Qantas here in Australia, of serious dishonesty for the way that they listed Taiwan on, on their websites. And uh, we're told that if they uh, um, that they needed to change this, and if it, they didn't, then it would uh, count against their credit records, as well as um, leading to penalties under lo- other laws, such as the cybersecurity law. And what happens is that if you are penalized um, under, say, this this credit regulation, that could trigger penalties on all the other uh, laws. So it's basically a way of integrating information and then using that um, as a more effective regulatory mechanism for enforcing uh, the CCP's will, whether it's uh, actual regulation related to airline safety that any country would consider, or political as as these law, this law has been used in this case. What happened in January was that uh, every business was required to update their business registration, their, their license, so that it included a code. And if they didn't, then they could face a fine. Uh, so basically, they just up- updated their license, and then that had this 18-digit code. That becomes effective for um, NGOs and other entities uh, June 30th, 2018. Now, what strikes me as so interesting about the airline case is the uh, rapidity with which the airlines seem to just fall in line, all these foreign, not just airlines, but also foreign companies as well. I mean, does that show that, uh, you know, there's really no escaping the social credit scheme if you want to do business or interact with China in any way? There's not really an opt-out clause. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's almost why it's a system that is integrating so many things into one. It, it for, for China, it's almost a, a low-risk move 
because what they've done is say, well, if you don't comply with this, then that's obviously going to affect your ability to do business in China. And so um, airlines acting in the way that you would expect them to uh, would have to comply. And governments have uh, a limited toolkit for actually responding to that. You can't respond to that reciprocally without undermining um, liberal democratic systems. I think that in the cases where airlines haven't responded, it's because there's been some pressure particularly in the U.S., that, that they don't change the language yet. Um, but, you know, there's there's little option right now. Uh, there's another case that I cite in the report um, on the, the Japanese company Muji's uh, Shanghai branch, and uh, they were accused of a violation under the advertising law uh, for the way that they put made in Taiwan on, on products. And as a result of that violation, which they didn't rectify in enough time, that violation was recorded on the credit system. As a result, that could also trigger other fines, and that's uh, recorded on a credit system that also has other data about the companies that you would expect to find if you looked up any company, say you would get information about um, holdings and shareholders and things like that. Also violations um, that could be political or non-political or both um, about a company or individual. Can I jump in a little bit here? I found a case of social management system and other cases shows this particular characteristic of Chinese regulatory environment. First of all, it's operated under this intermediary um, liability system where they're basically downloading this uh, idea of company behavior. Like company have to monitor their behavior to comply with Chinese law and regulation in essence, is downloading the state's responsibility to the company, right? So company have to bear the cost and the burden uh, in order to do business in China. And second of all, um, Chinese law and regulations are written in such a vaguely and broadly defined way that companies basically find it impossible to comply in many of cases, leading to self-censorship and over-censorship and if they fail to meet the authority's requirement, which is not specifically set in laws and regulation, they can face up to fine or revocation of business license. I find this is um, not only applied to social credit score system, but also Chinese censorship and many other cases in China. I find it yeah. a smart way to <laughs> keep, keep companies in line. Yeah, and even the civil aviation industry credit management measures—they were their trial measures that um, were written according to the measures explicitly for implementing the social credit 2014-2020 uh, plan. The clauses that could be relevant include things uh, like serious disturbances and safety incidents, and you would think that could include something like a passenger deciding to open an emergency exit door or waiting uh, on the tarmac because they just no longer want to be on the plane. It could also include, though, uh, false terrorism charges against uh, uh, political opponents, uh, those that the, the CCP considers political opponents, such as Uyghurs, because the CCP already does that. And what's interesting is that I, I came across a notification on the um, um, overseas Chinese Affairs uh, Office website, which uh, was for the attention of overseas and ethnic Chinese, and said, uh, attention, uh, this civil aviation credit measure also applies to you. Um, and so it's easy to see how this can ex extend not only to companies, but individuals. And it is ambiguous, but the CCP thrives on ambiguity. One thing in looking at the social credit system extending beyond China's borders, I was fascinated um, that you mentioned Confucius Institutes could be used as overseas data collection stations to bolster the social credit system. Um, what evidence do you have of that, and, and how would this work? 
Sure. So one part of the social credit system that is overlooked is this idea that we mentioned before called discourse power. In order to improve a country's discourse power, it seemed that um, you need to have data collection to support environmental awareness. And so some of the um, articles that I came across were fairly explicit in stating how this data could be collected overseas, and particularly in relation to the um, One Belt, One Road, or BRI project. One said that uh, data courier stations within foreign countries would be used to collect data and then send that back to China for analysis both for normal economic development purposes. So if you're thinking about a um, project and you can use that uh, for very normal purposes that we would in any country, but then that would also uh, enhance emergency response or defense mobilization capacity as well. Confucius Institutes were cited in in one report that named a number of things, so Confucius Institutes, telecoms, transportation companies, uh, chain hotels, um, and and so on. Even chain hotels? Yeah. And, I mean, the reasons for data collection could be um, different at each each location, and then the methods of data collection would be different. Um, But what was interesting about the Confucius Institutes was that data collection could be uh, coming from very normal things. Obviously, collecting data can support teaching, but it can also support information ranging from identifying of, you know, future future leaders, uh, you know, people who might be more sympathetic to the CCP's um, interests, um, ways to insert a different voice into public debate in the local environment, all, all different reasons that that could be useful. It supports the social credit system based on the idea that the social credit system is used to increase discourse power. Um, and and that's, that's where that connection is. Elsa, both you and Samantha cite the example of the University of Technology in Sydney, which has a $20 million partnership with China Electronics Group Corporation. Um, and you cite that as an example of what universities should avoid. And you both mentioned this one project involving research into public security online video retrieval systems. I mean, what is so worrying about this? Clearly, there is moral hazard there when you have universities within democracies supporting the development of technologies that will be used for surveillance by regimes that are clearly quite authoritarian. So there's definitely an ethical dimension to that. But I'd say with regard to CETC in particular, this is a state-owned defense conglomerate that works very closely with the PLA and is involved in developing everything from quantum radar to swarm intelligence to broad range of defense electronics, including military command information systems that are starting to incorporate artificial intelligence. So I think certainly, although I believe that in that overall openness and cooperation in research are integral to innovation and at the core of what we as democracies embrace and a source of our competitive advantage, but at the same time, when you have a key player in the Chinese defense industry that is funding research, for instance, in Australia, or that is collaborating with academics on dual-use research that does start to raise some red flags. And I think it does raise questions that, like in the case of Confucius Institutes, I think we should be asking and looking for answers on, for instance, who controls the results of this research, who has access to the data associated with it, what happens to the intellectual property, that could uh, come come out of these sorts of collaborations down the road and will the benefits of this cooperation be reciprocal reciprocal or could they be asymmetric in nature so certainly 
I'm not opposed to academic cooperation or collaboration, but I think in particular cases, certainly CETC, I think, is a good example of a line that has been crossed. And CETC's different partnerships in Australia on defense-related technologies, including also unmanned systems and quantum technologies, I think, are are concerning given how closely CETC is linked to Chinese military modernization. Elsa, do you think part of the issue is that um, a lot of people in the West don't take China seriously yet um, as a, a scientific superpower? I mean, China talks itself up as a cyber superpower. Um, and in many contests, um, such as contests around artificial intelligence, um, around facial recognition and computer vision, Chinese companies have come out ahead. And yet you say in your research there's a lingering um, belief amongst a lot of Western um, powers that China is still a long way from from catching up. Um, Do you think they're underestimating China's capabilities? Certainly Xi Jinping is trying to make uh, China a superpower across quite a few different dimensions, from cyber to science to different industries like aerospace and otherwise. And I think some of these ambitions should be tempered by an awareness that not all of these objectives will be realized. I think China's struggles in semiconductors are a very vivid example of how you can throw billions at an industry and still not quite succeed in catching up. But I'd say that we shouldn't underestimate the fact that China's efforts in indigenous innovation are advancing and there still can be a reliance upon tech transfer through licit and illicit means that certainly have accelerated efforts across a number of fields, including in defense science and technology. But increasingly, we're seeing innovation that truly is made in China. I think for that reason, there's been a lot of playing defense recently in U.S. policy, trying to think about ways to prevent tech transfer or prevent Chinese acquisitions of, and more broadly, access to sensitive technologies. And I think that's a partial solution at best, because certainly we need to push back on efforts where the openness of innovation and democracies is exploited. Elsa, I wanted to come back to this issue of um, cooperation with universities outside China um, with my colleague Anders first. We did some reporting on UNSW, which is a university in Sydney, which has this $100 million project with various Chinese companies. A lot of them are high-tech companies, and they include companies like Huawei, who have had suspicions cast on them about their background, but also companies doing work that is, uh, you know, ostensibly dual use in nature, as satellite navigation schemes, underwater sonar schemes, these kind of things. But the university, when we asked them for comment, they said, well, you know, we haven't broken any laws. There's nothing against what we've done. And a lot of the experts that we spoke to said, given today's technology, you can't even tell what's dual use anymore. It's impossible to police this. In that current climate, where universities are starved for funding, how can they go about these collaborations and get the best out of them without exposing themselves to these kind of problems? That's a great example and a great question for which there is not a single or complete answer or solution at this point. And certainly these are very tricky issues across the board, including because, as you mentioned, the concept of dual use is really inadequate when it comes to talking about technologies that are qu- quite expansive in their potential and applications. So 
the PLA Air Force is using commercial drones in support of logistics to deliver supplies to far-flung military units. Uh, facial recognition clearly is something that has a lot of commercial applications, but clearly quite relevant in surveillance. And what's the difference between a self-driving car and a self-driving tank? I think certainly <laughs> the boundaries become incredibly blurred here, and I think there will never be a clear or unambiguous way to draw the line and say that this clearly is warfare technology and this clearly is only commercial because the potential is there. It can also be difficult to evaluate that potential for early stage research. I think certainly one way to differentiate is based on who the partner in question is and whether that entity has clear linkages to the Chinese Communist Party or a central or the central or a local government to the Chinese military or defense industry. At least for now, many of these problematic partnerships, so to speak, are entirely legal. And I think as we're seeing more pushback against cyber espionage and human espionage and pushback against Chinese investments and acquisitions, including through in the United States for reforms to uh, CFIUS and otherwise, we may see more and more a turning to these cooperation uh, collaborations as a as an alternative to access top technologies and talent. I'd urge against punitive me measures to start, but rather sort of raising aware greater awareness about these issues, considering policy changes, whether to export controls or otherwise, or even just restrictions that universities that are receiving military or government funding for sensitive research perhaps should not also be allowed to collaborate with partners with clear links to foreign militaries, state-owned enterprises, or otherwise. So I think a lot of safeguards could be considered and implemented that might mitigate some of the risks here. And certainly, I think a lot of the wonderful reporting that's been happening, particularly in Australia, has been a great way of starting to raise awareness of these issues and some of the challenges that are clearly in play. The dual-use dilemma for a lot of research that kind of multiple uh, end uses and applications. And the other issue is not just dual use, it's also dual purpose. And that's something that my report identifies where, you know, you're talking about something like smart cities, which uh, are going to genuinely solve problems in economic and social development, not just in China, but elsewhere. But if you're talking about traffic management, that can, you know, you could talk about improving traffic management. You could also uh, talk about the same technology being used to identify what vehicles are in a certain place and who's in them. And, uh, you know, that might not be the case when the same technology is deployed in in the West, in a, in a democracy, you know, you wouldn't necessarily need an identifier. You could just use sensors to detect uh, how many vehicles are in, a, in an area or in a parking garage or something. In China, the purpose is to do both at the same time, solve problems, but political security is always part of that problem solving. Yeah, security is a very broad concept uh, applied when applied by the Chinese state. When they talk about security, it can mean public security in the sense that let's say big data technology, Alibaba City Brain Project um, on paper is being used to solve issues like improve urban planning and solve issues like traffic jam, but um, it can also arguably be used in monitoring where there would be a public gathering and stuff like that. Um, so when you have a, a state that is lack of transparency and accountability, the use of security is a, could argu arguably be a problematic 
um, um, concept. But it's also very important to look at how Chinese technology, big data technology and AI application has been exporting to um, countries like in Southeast Asia and Ethiopia. Uh, for example, Alibaba City Brain project uh, is already being migrated to uh, Malaysia. And also Ethiopia have been importing a lot of Chinese policing technology. So those are some areas that worth researcher and policymakers to keep paying an eye out for as well. And I would add that it's troubling when we think about the implications for democracy, particularly fragile democracies around the world, that Chinese companies that are going global and pursuing commercial opportunities may thus uh, advance the diffusion of technologies that provide capabilities that may very well be abused by governments of a less than fully democratic nature. And I think this raises some very serious questions about what this means for the future of democracy in the world and the tremendous potential for abuse. And certainly the US has had its own issues with uh, some of these technologies, but there has been an open debate on how algorithms are starting to be used in policing, questions of bias and otherwise. And I think it's important now more than ever to promote an AI for good agenda, so to speak, and to talk about how these technologies can also be used for positive purposes and to really start a diverse conversation about law, ethics, norms, and frameworks for the governance of these technologies. And China may actually start to attempt to dominate the conversation in certain respects. China's pushing for certain standards, has talked in its plans about seizing the high ground and uh, promoting certain paradigms of AI governance. And as we saw in debates on cyber governance and China's promotion of cyber sovereignty, often the concepts and paradigms that the Chinese government may start to promote may also have some concerning implications for freedom of expression and otherwise, and can also be appealing to a number of states that might not buy fully into a more open approach. And do you find this is tied into the Belt and Road Initiative? Is this explicitly um, part of the BRI? I think certainly uh, the Belt and Road Initiative is increasingly focusing on scientific cooperation, including standing up new joint laboratories and big data centers, and certainly for China, given that if there is an arms race in AI right now, I would say it's for talent, not for killer robots, at least not yet. And certainly for China to really be a leader in AI, they need to be able to attract and leverage top talent, both within China, including through a lot of the educational initiatives that are getting underway, but also leverage the abilities of researchers around the world and certainly the focus on cooperation scientifically under this umbrella is promoting that agenda in certain respects. I'd also say I think we should expect to see a lot more on the digital Silk Road side of things with uh, Chinese companies really taking a critical role in building up connectivity and infrastructure in parts of the world, including 5G, and in certain ways that agenda may also end up promoting Chinese standards and technologies to become much more pervasive and global in their presence in ways that can create new opportunities for espionage, perhaps, and also new sources of leverage, given that the companies that may build and control this infrastructure are often, as in the case of the very heated debates about Huawei, can be certainly questionable in terms of their potential to be used by the state or complicit in state espionage activities. So finally, just to kind of sum up, it seems to me that what you've all been describing is the emergence of 
an authoritarian, ethno-nationalist, high-tech security state where monitoring and surveillance is really outsourced to citizens and companies uh, with the aim that they kind of become self-policing in regulating their own behavior. To all of you, do you see that as a correct characterization? And to each of you, what is the area of biggest concern in that interaction between tech and social control uh, that we're seeing now? I'm worried by the marriage between the state and private companies. Uh, if you look at all the big data projects, we've seen that private companies not only are required to share user information with government and law enforcement forces, but big players in this field, industry leaders, are actually building their business model uh, around the need of the state. So this marriage between the state and private companies, especially um, in face of this advanced technology and how they, they might be used by both companies and also the states is very um, is a worry, uh, worrying phenomenon to me. And I, I would say that phenomenon also extends into defense, given the implementation of a national strategy of military-civil fusion, which is trying to overcome some of the traditional barriers and obstacles between leveraging commercial technologies for defense purposes and vice versa. And certainly there, there are some indications that, that that agenda is advancing really nationwide and that the Chinese military is becoming more capable of leveraging commercial technologies to advance its own capabilities, including in artificial intelligence, everything from a new National Defense Science Technology Innovation Rapid Response small group, which is characterized as a bit of a DIUX with Chinese characteristics, a Chinese version of the U.S. Uh, Defense Innovation Unit Experimental, which seeked, sought to bridge the gap between the Pentagon and Silicon Valley. Uh, this has now been stood up in Shenzhen and is in, intended to allow the Chinese military to use advanced commercial technologies for its own purposes. And you have national champions like Baidu that are working with CEDC on the use of big data, cloud computing, and artificial intelligence for military command control and military command information systems. So I think certainly beyond the uh, very dystopian elements of this uh, techno-security state in surveillance, I'm also concerned about the military dimension of this, particularly as a lot of the technologies that both the U.S. and China believe could enable them to fight and win future wars are increasingly being pioneered by private enterprises that are much closer to and often co-opted by the state in China. So you mentioned the idea of self-regulation or self-management, and that uh, that concept is so key to understanding social credit because that's what social management is about. It's the idea that you will automatically uh, self-manage as an uh, automatic action. And uh, technology can only, in, in the way that the, the Chinese Communist Party is talking about using it, uh, can only increase existing human rights violations. So if we've been turning a blind eye, particularly in the West, uh, for, to this for a very long time, including to the uh, overseas Chinese uh, in our own countries and abuses of civil liberties for, for a long time, how is this system going to uh, worsen uh, ex existing processes of control. I think that's why one of the, the recommendations in my paper is that we need to actually strengthen uh, democratic resilience in our own countries and think about issues like data protection and civil liberties protection, um, not thinking, framing these issues as simply national security issues, but thinking a lot broader. Um, because if we don't, then 
uh, will have a bigger problem in the long run. The, the more that you talk, the more kind of ominous and frankly terrifying it sounds, because in many ways, uh, these are things that cannot be rolled back, can they? It is the sort of rise of China as a sort of high-tech surveillance state and the exporting of these capabilities. That's something that, that is unstoppable, isn't it? I don't think it can be rolled back, but we can certainly make efforts to understand the system and try to prevent its further expansion. Um, you know, something like export controls, that's a short-term solution while we try to find better solutions. But in order to do that, we need to start asking more questions. And at the same time, the flip side of capability is often vulnerability. And the creation of these complex systems within bureaucracies not known for their agility or in some cases competence can create new points of failure or new sources of error or uncertainty that could in some cases also create new challenges for the party. And I think it's telling that China's AI plans often express concerns for ensuring that AI will remain secure and controllable. And there is a focus on safety and standards, but also perhaps in some cases an ideological dimension to that and a story that I like to tell because I think it rather cutely illustrates some of these unexpected risks or consequences that may arise was that of a... Uh, poor chatbot on the Chinese internet that uh, after it started to misbehave a little bit and when asked, uh, do you love the Chinese Communist Party, simply said no and even worse, uh, declared its Chinese dream was to go to America and express some sympathy for Taiwan. Uh, and imagine that chatbot was not long for this world and that's sort of a simple, almost a very simple example, but I think one that illustrates that with new technologies comes disruption and unpredictability in both in trivial ways and in more significant ways. And I think that the Chinese Communist Party is also deeply concerned about the societal impact of AI and how automation could disrupt current patterns of employment, it could change people's lives for the better. And there's almost this utopian narrative that AI will make life more beautiful in China, everyone will have their friendly robot teacher and a doctor, and AI can be used to support elder care and in many respects, solve a lot of problems that the Chinese government has struggled to solve. But I think at the same time, these technologies create uncertainty and disruption in ways that can also create new vulnerability. And I think that's something that the CCP will be concerned about. Technology also hasn't stopped PLA veterans from protesting recently. It hasn't uh, solved a lot of other problems yet. So certainly the potential is there and the aspiration is there. But I think reality will remain much more complicated and quite a bit messier than uh, these techno-utopian and dystopian dreams may lead us to believe. Thanks to our guests, Elsa Kania, Lotus Run and Samantha Hoffman. I'm Graham Smith and you've been listening to the Little Red Podcast, bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. Find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll also find show notes on Facebook to learn more about their work. This episode was recorded at the Australian National University with support from the Australian Centre for China in the World. Our editors are Andy Hazel and Buffy Gorilla. Our theme music is by Susie Wilkins and our cartoons and gifts are courtesy of Seb Danter. Bye for now.